Mark chapter 8 this morning. The message I call, Who Do Men Say That I Am? Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went to, out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? And so they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. In our journey through the Gospel of Mark and our messages on Sunday morning, we come to this passage of Scripture, a very pivotal moment in the ministry of Jesus Christ. This passage is located both literally and linguistically in the center of Mark's Gospel, 16 chapters of Mark, so literally this is in the middle. Uh, but also linguistically, because everything that we've looked at up to this point, we're really just building up to this passage and this moment. Everything after it is going to be flowing away from this moment. Two and a half years, Jesus has been ministering mostly in the region of Galilee. Occasionally down into Jerusalem and Judea, but mostly in Galilee. We saw him earlier in chapter 8 and going on that uh, long circuitous trip up into the Decapolis region. Then he came back to Galilee. And now we see him headed off into an area that is identified as the towns of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, this is an area well known to us historically. Uh, we know they were located at the base of beautiful uh, snow-covered Mount Hermon in the northern uh, regions up north of Israel. Uh, we know it was at the headwaters of the Jordan River. We also know it was a famous idolatrous region dedicated uh, to the worship of the Greek mythological figure named Pan. That was the half-man, half-horse figure uh, that we read about and know about in, uh, in uh, Greek and also in Roman mythology. Uh, the caves that were present in this area were considered to be kind of a gateway, a pathway that the gods, their gods, used uh, to enter into the underworld, Hades, as they would have called it, or hell, so much so that these caves were literally known as the gates of hell, the gates of hell. It was a place in a flourishing idolatry, very Gentile area. It was also a place of stunning immorality because those two things always go together. Wherever men have a depreciated view of God, it's not far before they will degrade themselves. Wherever they get a distorted view of God, they'll have a distorted view of themselves. And so this time of a place of flourishing idolatry was also a place of horrible immorality. The backdrop then of the events of our text today was carefully chosen by Jesus. It's about a 25-mile journey. The Sea of Galilee is below sea level, so from the time they left the Sea of Galilee and started up towards Caesarea, it was uphill all the way. This was a carefully chosen scene as Jesus once again removed the disciples away from the area of Judea. And this one was for a very important teaching moment. 
So let's look this morning at the way this passage lays out before us. We begin with the conversation itself. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? Now, this is a serious question for their moment. It's a very, very serious question for our moment. What do people, what do people say? What are they saying uh, that I am? What do people say? This is a matter, you see, of general conversation. It's the kind of question, uh, the kind of issue that can be brought up in a coffee shop. It can be uh, brought up in a break room at work. It can be brought up in a classroom or in, in a place of fellowship or out on a, in a park. Just, well, what do, what do people believe about Jesus? What do people say about Jesus? But, of course, <coughs> Jesus didn't leave it in that place. He quickly moved from there to that pointed question. Who do you say that I am? Now it's just not, not just a matter of conversation anymore. Uh, now it's that pointed question. Who do you say that I am? The disciples reported, of course, what was commonly believed, what was being said, uh, uh, the, what the word was on the street, if you were, about Jesus. And they said that, uh, well, a lot of people say that you're John the Baptist Come back from the dead. We saw that a couple of weeks ago as Herod uh, had heard this. He had picked up on it that John the Baptist was risen from the dead. and That's who Jesus was. And of course with Herod's way of thinking, we know what Herod was out to do. If Jesus was indeed John the Baptist risen from the dead, Herod had killed John the Baptist. If, if that was indeed true, uh, Herod would kill him again. That would, have been, that would have been his plan. That's the kind of guy he was. Uh, so he was, uh, Herod had picked up on this. A lot of other people apparently had that idea. Others had proclaimed that uh, Jesus was Elijah. And that builds on what the Bible says in Mark chapter, Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. The last of the Old Testament prophets had promised that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. And so uh, you might remember the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Elijah left out of this planet without dying. He was taken out on a chariot of fire sent just for him. And, and so here we have this Old Testament prophecy, the last prophecy in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, telling us that Elijah was going to come before Jesus came. So that's what a lot of people were saying about Jesus. Jesus was Elijah. Uh, that had a common theme with the last thing they said. They say, you're a prophet. Uh, the woman at the well came to that conclusion in John chapter 4. As Jesus said, go and call your husband, she said, I perceive that you're a prophet. Nicodemus, John chapter 3, came to Jesus by night, a religious leader. We know that you're a teacher sent from God. What was their conclusion? You're a prophet. And so there was a general consensus out there that Jesus was a prophet. Now, there were many others, of course, who denied that. Uh, they, in fact, uh, some of them said that he was of the devil. Some said he was a false prophet, a false teacher. But there was a widely held consensus, obviously, the disciples then were able to report on that Jesus was a prophet. Now, their facts were true, were correct. Jesus was indeed a prophet, but he was much, much more than a prophet. Then as now then, there were conflicting ideas about Jesus. And he led them out of Judea to initiate this question. The answer to it was certainly going to play out there. 
It would be there in that ancient city of Jerusalem where Jesus would be tried in a mockery of a trial, scourged, whipped, tortured, nailed to a cross, dead, buried. But three days later came crashing out of the tomb. Yes, that whole story was going to play out in Jerusalem. But it's interesting that Jesus took them away from that area to a completely Gentile, idolatrous era. You see, he was teaching them that though this answer, though this thing was going to play out predominantly in Jerusalem and Judea, the implications of it went far beyond there. It was a far greater audience. So when Jesus surrounded them with this very idolatrous place, very evil place, very wicked place, And he presented to them then this glorious truth. He was doing this because the disciples were going to see a whole lot more of territory like this than they would see in Jerusalem and Judea. Now, it was there that Jesus then posted this question, What do you believe about Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? It's an excellent time then for us to remind ourselves this morning of how crucial this conversation is. The chances are you're going to be around somebody very much precious to you, somebody that you really love over the next few days, that you need to ask that question of. You need to have them to give an answer to that consideration. Who who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus in your life? And as we go away from even Thanksgiving, we head into the most popular uh, American holiday of all, Christmas. Although I'd have to say Halloween is gaining on it based on the uh, number of people I see decorating for it. And and even when you think about Christmas decorations, a lot of them are about a, a guy in a red suit rather than the true message of Christianity. You see, many people celebrate Christianity in a completely secular way in America. That's true. But still, the basic truth of the message is there about Jesus Christ, who He is, who is Jesus to you. In a way, then, we're far ahead of the disciples because Jesus would send them out into a world where the name of Jesus was completely unknown. But in another way, we're way far behind them because we go out into a world with the message of Jesus Christ Where people have so much knowledge about Jesus, but so much of what they know is wrong. Maybe they've even made up their minds about Jesus, but they've never really considered the real facts. It may be hard for you to believe this, but I want you to know, as citizens of Cabot, Arkansas, members of Faith Missionary Baptist Church, we need to remind ourselves from time to time that there are people all around our community who have never really had a clear explanation of who Jesus is and what He'll do for you. They don't know. Now you say, surely not in Cabot. Yes, surely in Cabot. Uh, there's a stunning and growing ignorance about who Jesus is. Who Jesus is, really. And a lot of times when people are rejecting Jesus Christ, they're not even rejecting the Christ as He's presented in Scripture. They're rejecting the Christ as somebody has made Him out to be. Who is Jesus? Tell me what you think about Jesus. That's the conversation. And it's a great conversation to have. 
Then there's the confession. Verse 29, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Matthew's account of this would have Simon Peter adding, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So that Simon Peter declared Jesus to be exactly what he would declare him to be later on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36 when he said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Christ would refer to his title as the Messiah, Lord. That speaks of his deity, Son of God. God had promised, you see, a deliverer to Israel. And Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. He is the Jewish Messiah. He always will be the Jewish Messiah. Yes, He is indeed the Messiah of Israel. But He was more because He was Son of God. And that made, made him Savior of the world. John the aged would write in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 14, We have seen and testify. I love that. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son, there it is, as Savior of the world. Isn't it interesting, though, in John's gospel, it was this group of people, a group of Samaritans. Remember, we talked about the woman at the well in Samaria and the people who believed because of her testimony. And look what those men said in John chapter 4 and verse 42. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Jewish Messiah, certainly, all but more. He's the Savior of the whole world. Out of this conversation then would come that confession of Jesus as the Son of God, where they confessed His deity as well as His office as Messiah. It would only be a matter of days before Jesus would put that deity on prominent display. As he would ascend up on them, we'll see this when we come back together in a week or so, as he ascends up on the mountain of transfiguration, and the Bible says he's transfigured before them, and he shows them then his deity. But before they saw that display of his deity, they first confessed it. Let's remember this morning that in God's economy, it is always believing that is seeing. We say seeing is believing, but God says believing is seeing. You see, they believed it. They confessed it first. We believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They saw it. Just a few days later, there's a conversation then. And that conversation uh, asks them a question, the consideration of the question. Who do you say that I am? And then comes the confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But that leads quickly to a confrontation. Verse 30, Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke this word openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter took him aside 
and began to rebuke him. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, the text doesn't say that over and over again. I've repeated it just to make sure you understood the scene that's playing out here. Simon Peter took Jesus, pulled him away from the disciples, and rebuked him. But when he had turned around, that's Jesus, and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. The Bible tells us that Jesus began to speak openly. That means plainly, specifically, clearly about his pending death. No parables, no obscure sayings. He was telling them plainly and specifically, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed and arrested and rejected. I'll be tortured and killed, crucified, put to death, buried, And rise again. Very plain talk from Jesus. And then Simon Peter, though Jesus was speaking openly and plainly about his death, Peter spoke plainly and openly in telling Jesus that he's wrong. I believe Simon Peter was sincere in what he did. Because, you see, what he was was hearing to him was two impossible things, things that could not go together. That Jesus was the Jewish Messiah and Deliverer, but that Jesus was going to die. Jesus was the one who was going to bring deliverance and, and, and national pride and prominence once again to the land of Israel, but Jesus is going to be crucified. Those two things in Simon Peter's way of thinking could not possibly be true. One or the other of them could be true, but they both could not be true. He was completely sincere then in what he was doing, but he was sincerely wrong. He had more of a problem than just uh, he had bad information or that he had reached a bad conclusion or that he was sincere about something but sincerely wrong. He needed more information. That was true. Jesus had told them after, they'd conf- after this confession, they'd put their heads together, they made the confession. Simon Peter's a spokesman. Uh, after they made that confession, he said, don't tell anybody. Why? Because they needed more information. Yes, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Yes, that was absolutely true, but there was more to it. They needed the truth of the gospel which was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they had a problem. That problem was incomplete, insufficient information. That was true. They, they reached a bad conclusion. Yes, Simon Peter uh, was actually taking Jesus aside and rebuking him. But there was something else at work. And that was the devil himself. That's why though Jesus was rebuking Simon Peter, he spoke to Satan. Get behind me, Satan. 
and rebuked Satan. You see, Jesus certainly knew what Simon Peter's problem was, but he also knew there was a power behind the problem. And the power behind the problem was the effort of of satanic opposition to oppose the truth of the gospel so that when the truth of the gospel was put on display, the devil goes to work to get people to see anything but the truth of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul told us, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. We need to recognize there is a power at work in this world, a power of evil, a power of darkness. That power is not in some kind of an impersonal dark side. That power has a name. And Jesus called it, get behind me, Satan. There's a a problem, an obvious problem. But then there's a power behind the problem. The great evangelist Bailey Smith once told a fictitious story. It's fictitious about a character he named Barney Burns. He called him that because Barney Burns liked to burn barns. He would go and start a fire then at a barn. And everybody at the fire department would come, put the fire out. And while they were putting the fire out at this barn, old Barney Burns would just go down to the next house and, and the next barn and he'd set in a fire. And while the fire department come and put that fire out, he would go down and start another one. And, and, there, and, and he told that story. And I tell it to you today to, as an illustration of how there is a obvious problem uh, you know we got a lot of barns burning down but there's a power behind the problem and sooner or later you got to stop calling just the fire department somebody needs to call the police and arrest that guy that's the point there's a power behind the problem i tell you what, what folk our our country today our culture today is on fire not literally not, but, but spiritually, there, there's a fire of controversy that rages in our country, in our culture, and around the world. It is everywhere. I don't have to belabor that point. You see it just like I see it. It's in our newscasts, it's on our news reports, on our internet. Everywhere you look, the fires of controversy are raging in our culture today. What you and I need to remind ourselves from time to time is the power of what this passage tells us. There is a power behind the problem? Does it seem like there is some evil force at work? Does it seem like that something is conspiring and trying to bring about a reign of darkness and of evil and of depravity? Does it seem like somebody is pulling the strings on all this? It should because there is. There is. It is Satan himself. The power of darkness moving in our world. The Bible calls it the mystery of iniquity. And the New Testament told us that that mystery of iniquity or that mystery of lawlessness was already at work. And it would continue to work. Only, the Bible told us, that he who now restrains it will continue to do so. There is a restraining power that works against that mystery of lawlessness and iniquity. And that restraining power is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is preached and proclaimed and people receive it, 
And so while on the one hand, here is Satan at work, and what is he trying to do? He's trying to veil the truth of the gospel, hide this truth of who Jesus is and what he was about to do. And at that very pivotal moment, he was there on the scene at work. He still is. But you know what? In Matthew's account, we had that great promise that Jesus gave when he said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That no doubt would speak of the work of idolatry. It would no doubt speak of the work of evil in the world. And so that that confession of who Jesus Christ is and what He is doing, He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, would not be overcome. There was a power then that restrains, a power that would work. And it has worked. But you know, the Bible also warns about a day of a falling away on the part of God's people. The Bible also warns of a time when people would turn away their ears from the truth. We live in that day. And when God's people aren't spreading the news, when the world at large is not listening to it, it produces then a fertile playing field for the evil work of the devil to play out. So at this pivotal moment in time where Jesus begins to present the truth of the gospel plainly, he went to work, the devil went to work to keep them from seeing anything but that. If Christ died for our sins, and he did, if he rose from the dead victorious to validate his claim to be able to forgive us of our sins and to give us a new life, and he did, That changes everything. We look at ourselves and we look at our world through a whole different perspective. When we we see it through the lens of the one who died and rose and lives again forever. Our Savior Jesus Christ. The conversation, the confession, the confrontation. Lastly and very quickly, hang with me. There's the commission. When he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel, the same shall save it. Jesus then moves immediately to make application of this truth in the one area where it has to be seen. How does this play out in my life? What difference does this make? It's easy for me to say, well, this changes everything. What exactly does it change? For those of us who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have to ask ourselves the question, is this my life to live as I please? Is it up to me to decide who I am and what I am and what I want to do? Jesus then moves to answer or to ask two more great important questions. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? It's question number three. Number four, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? In a way, those two questions, last two, are, are, are just restating the same question. They're, they're certainly tied together. But the answer is easily seen because Jesus did not ask us, what do you get 
in exchange for your soul. That's what you do when you make a sale. You get, give something. Somebody gives something in return. But Jesus did not ask what you get, but what you give. Because the truth is, whatever we get for our soul, we can't keep. When we lose our soul, we lose it all. What's the matter if you gain the whole world? If you lose your soul, what will you give? Because whatever you get, you can't keep. What will you give in exchange for your soul? Therefore, he says in verse 38, Whoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Four questions. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What profit is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? In the middle of those four questions, Jesus moved to insert the truth of his death burial, and resurrection that ties all of those questions together. So that it all hinges on how you answer that question. Who is Jesus? Do you see Him as the Son of God? Virgin born. Sinless life. Died on the cross then for your sins. Buried, but didn't stay buried. Rose again the third day. Do you see Him? Have you believed on Him and received Him so that your soul is eternally secure in Him? Or have you rejected Him? You see, these four pivotal issues surround the truth of the gospel. And as Jesus gave them... This incredible teaching, four questions, truth of gospel right in the middle. He did it in a place where he called adulterous and sinful. Isn't that interesting? The world hasn't changed very much. Jesus looked around at his day, and what did he see? He saw an adulterous place, a place full of sexual immorality and idolatry. It was rampant with it. He looked at a place full of evil and of wickedness. And he knew that that was exactly where he was sending his disciples out to. He knew. He knew what he was putting before him. And so he closes out with this last reminder about how this information changes your life. Because you see, knowing who Jesus is changes how we look at life. It changes how we look at death. It changes how we look at living. It changes how we look at dying. It changes how we look at what happens after you die. Because we don't just crawl in a grave and pull dirt over our face and be done. It changes everything. And so with this truth, he sends them out into an adulterous and wicked world with the truth that will change them if they'll receive it. And this sobering reminder 
Will you be ashamed of me? Will you be ashamed of my words? Let's all remember this morning. There's one thing we don't want to hear when we stand before the Lord Jesus. We're not going to hear, depart from me, not if you've received him as your Savior. But we sure don't want to hear him say, you know, I'm ashamed of you. Because you were ashamed of me. I'm ashamed of you because you were ashamed of my truth. It was inconvenient. It puts you in a tough spot in such a wicked world. Jesus knew that all along. Truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ is the anchor of all of our lives. It's the anchor of our children's lives, of generations of children and children yet unborn. If God so moves or so decides to grant us more time, it is the truth of the gospel that will endure. The gates of hell won't prevail. The truth of who Jesus is and what he does will. Let's stand together, please.